Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, y'all? Exactly, living corporate and man, goodness gracious, wild times we're living in. I hope that you're washing your hands, keeping your hands off your face, not congregating in groups uh, of more than ten, more than really just just chilling. Really, right? Take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Um, I hope that you've been listening to the content that Living Corporate has been putting out regarding um, just working from home um, and still maintaining community um, while working. Uh, from home, uh, just taking care of yourself. I'm hoping that you're able to engage in our content. And irrespective of that, I'm just hoping that you're safe. Um, you know, we always have conversations on this platform um, that aim to center and amplify underrepresented voices. And I think that we continue to separate ourselves um, as it pertains to to doing that. Right. Like we're trying to be unapologetic about really amplify and centering marginalized, underrepresented, underappreciated, underestimated voices at work. And we do this through having authentic, available, candid, transparent, any other words you want to use for real conversations with all types of people, authors, writers, professors, activists, executives, recruiters, entrepreneurs, influencers, um, artists, right? Like anybody that is passionate about this space. And with that being said, we have somebody on who honestly, and I, I, I know I always say that I, I'm like, I'll say like, I'm really a fan of this person, but I really am a fan. Like I'm like this person. If y'all anyway, we'll get into it. Ellen McGirt. Ellen McGirt is an award-winning journalist, senior editor of fortune magazine and covers race, culture, and leadership in a daily column for fortune called race ahead. Make sure y'all check out race. Ahead. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's fire. Her reporting has taken her inside the C-suites of Facebook, Nike, Twitter, Intel, Xerox, and Cisco. Now look, those are just a few. Okay. Cause that's not exhaustive. Um, on the campaign trail with Barack Obama. What's up? Come on. And across Africa with Bono to study breakthrough philanthropy in the past. She's written for time, money and fast company where she wrote, or contributed to more than 20 cover stories and created the digital series, The 32nd NBA. Back when the web was young, <laughs> she was the founder. So back like that's when Al Gore was like, you know, a, like a little less stodgy, like this is earlier. Um, she was the founder of a financial website for women called Cassandra's Revenge. And she established similar sites for AOL and Oxygen Media. Y'all, she established sites for, I'm, I'm like, co-sign, I'm like, it's crazy because I'm reading this and I'm like, as if I haven't read this before, but it's just wild when you think about like sites for AOL. Like that's, back in the day you know some of y'all don't remember you had to log on and then like the little man would be on the screen and then you know you couldn't be on the computer and then your mom be on the phone because um the busy signal because you had dial up and you pick up the phone it'd be like, shah, 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 shah. anyway 
she so the point is like she's OG, OG in the game. Ellen was uh, the lead editor for your first leadership job, a book published by Wiley in 2015. And she attended Brown University. Ellen, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am exhausted after listening to my bio. My <laughs> gosh, I've been busy, but so happy to be here, Zach. Thank you. Now, look, first off, we got to shout you out because you're one of the first articles that we cited on Living Corporate, Why Race and Culture Matter in the C-Suite, talking about uh, leading while black. Um, mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that piece and your journey on writing in race and leadership? A hundred percent we can. And because that really kicked off a whole new career development for me. But before we do, I have to shout you right back, Zach. I mean, when I stepped into the space of writing about race, particularly for the corporate world, I was stepping into a space where giants already inhabited the world and you are one of them. And I appreciate you. And I just want to let you know that at moments when I really don't know what to do, what to write, what to think about what's happening in the world, I've got your voice in my head and you steer me in the right direction. So I, I appreciate I appreciate you. I oh do. My gosh. But that's also the thing, and I know that you know this from doing this work, which is different from, you know, your day job and your your home life and it's just a distinct part of what you do, is that when you decide to talk about race and inclusion, particularly in the workplace and what that means in the world, you inherit a whole bunch of people that you didn't know existed who have been thinking about how to make the world better in this challenging way. And that's the blessing of the work. It really is. You know, speaking of the work, why do you think so few folks discuss the intersection of race and leadership in major publications? This is not even really an ad for fortune, right? Shout out to fortune. What's up? Um, But, you know, I don't see this a lot. You know, you see pieces from time to time in Harvard business review, but you don't, I, I don't think I've seen, dedicated um, spaces for this intersection of race and leadership in um, white owned publications. Why do you think that is? And then what's your fuel for doing this work? You know, this is that leads you me right back to your first question. You, you know, as well as anybody who is reading business material or even news magazines or news material, that race is just not something people were willing to talk about or comfortable talking about it. And I think for Fortune, which writes for the business audience, and not just any business audience, for a corporate audience, this is not something that had ever been taken on seriously in the corporate world before. And in addition to subscribers, in addition to people showing up at our events, major corporations actually are our advertisers and our sponsors. In many ways, we are paid for by the people that we cover. So it is an inherent tension, and we do have to walk that fine line. I know you and I have talked about this in the past. Right. Um, so imagine my surprise. You know, I, I, hadn't worked, I hadn't worked at Fortune in years. I had left in 2006 and joined a competitor for many, many years, which you mentioned. I would worked on a book. I was sort of looking around in my next, my, for my next act, and I get a ping out of the blue from Cliff Leaf, who is now the editor-in-chief, asking me if I would be willing to write a piece about why there's no black men in in the executive pipeline in Fortune 500 companies. So two things leap to mind. Oh, my gosh, of course, yes. And the second one is there really must not be anybody as part of just Fortune's daily lives who felt comfortable writing a piece like this, right. and which reflected just how tentative it all is for everyone. 
Um, newsrooms are not as diverse as they should be. Corporate America is nothing is as diverse as it should be. So my in my first conversation with Cliff, um, and I have to also shout out Alan Murray, who's now our CEO, then our president, mm. part of time. As you know, this is something that people that they cared about brought to their attention as something that would be welcome in the marketplace. And to their credit, two white men stood behind me and said, we pick you. Let's see. Let's see what happens. And my conversation with Cliff is, this can't just be about data. This just can't be an inspiring conversation with a beleaguered chief diversity officer somewhere who we all know doesn't get the resources that they need. We need to look at what happens in black men very specifically from the time they're born in under-resourced neighborhoods, in, in neighborhoods without insufficient food resources, in, with environmental issues, to the time they don't get to the C-suite. And where are we losing them? Mm. We're losing them school, or their under, under-resourced school, or bias treatment, disproportionate treatment while they're in school. We're, we're losing them into the criminal justice system, and we know how that works out. We're, right. we're losing them through a series of bias decisions and screening mechanisms, which are systemic health. If their mothers survive their birth with them, we're losing them every step of the way. And that was what that first story was intended to do, was to look at it from a holistic point of view. And Zach, it worked. It almost killed me, but it worked. Because, you know, yeah. in order to do it, I had to take the testimony of men just like you, yeah, um, and some not like you, younger than you, in different stages than you, sure. academicians, um, young men who would never join the corporate world for yeah. any reason because they don't trust it, and put that their pain and their regrets and their um, pressures and their inability to cope with some of the unique pressures they experience on full view. And that, that kicked us off with a... Um, an opening to have more of these kinds of conversations in long form in print and then in a daily newsletter, which has, and to my knowledge, had not been explored in this way in any business publication. We were growing a newsletter business, but it was particularly, it was usually sector oriented, like here's tech or or here's healthcare. You know, those are the kinds of things we tend to gravitate to. Here's mergers and acquisitions. The exceptions were Alan Murray's com- uh, CEO daily, which is about leadership, which is, of course, you know, top of mind news for yeah. top of the heap. And Broadsheet, which is for women and women, co- corporate women, which has inspired me from the very beginning and has turned into literally my sisters in inclusive thinking, like really advocating for what would make the workplace better for people right. who should be there in larger numbers. Yeah. And that, it was an accident. It was an experiment. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, you know, it's incredible. And um, I'm going to tell you, like, I read it. And Living Corporate's format back then was a little bit different. But, I, I mean, I I read it with I, – I hope that I gave it justice when I read it on the podcast because it was just – it really resonated with me. Um, and I remember, um, you know, you were – because you were profiling the now um, passed on um, – rest in peace, uh, Bernard Tyson. Um, and, yeah. and, and that was – and I just recall at the time, like, even reading the piece and the way – just the way you talked about Mr. Tyson – and just his journey, it was almost just like reading like a, like about a mythical figure. Right. Oh, wow. um, and so it just, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to me and it meant a lot to, I know it, I know it's meant a lot uh, to our, to our relationship, a little bit behind the scenes. Actually, that particular episode is one of our most reference. And that was like early. I mean, y'all, this was, um, this was almost two years ago, right? This is like one of our, like our first like 
10 or 15 yeah. episodes. This is one of my most downloaded episodes, actually, um, like to date. Um, so so you talked about it, you know, you say, you know, the piece it almost killed you. Like and you, you made mention of like, really, I, I believe without putting words in your mouth, you were alluding to the emotional labor of the work. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about what it looks like to do the work and like how you maintain um, in, in really grappling these types of topics day in and day out? You know, I am one of many, many people in many professions for a variety of reasons who have to look at the human condition. Um, and when you talk about race or gender in particular, then it's also my condition. It's how I have been left out or how my father, who served in World War II in the segregated army, came mm-hmm. home and couldn't vote or participate in home ownership programs for other veterans. You know, it's the weight of that. It's the understanding of the history and the extent of it and our unwillingness to um, examine it without defensiveness. That is just, it weighs so heavily. When I have candid conversations with people like Bernard Tyson, like yourself, like anybody, you feel the weight from them. And I feel a tremendous responsibility to get their story right and to put it in the correct context. The other thing I wasn't expecting, though, and again, and, and it's it's purely sort of the naivete of the journalistic separation, you know, the the sense that you have got some sort of distance, mm. was how ugly the world was going to get. Yeah. At at some point, I felt I still was going to rely heavily on, you know, data and surveys and diversity reports and truly inspiring one-on-one conversations with people who are doing the work. Yeah. I was not expecting Nazis in the streets. Mm. I was not prepared for video after video after video after video of people shot by and killed by police, yeah. you know, which I had to look at them all. And then in order to not make a mistake, because I'm not an expert, I don't have a background in it. Every right. every link I share, every every interview I have, I I have to over prepare for, and I I've gotten more used to it now. But I would spend hours reading, selecting links, curating them to share, trying to make sure I understood them, making sure I was framing them correctly, and that has been a wonderful. Master, I mean, I feel like I have nine master's degrees now, but shame on me if I make a mistake about how what's happening in an indigenous community or with gender. I wanted to be able to model the best possible work I was asking other people to do, which also meant that I would have to, you know, own a mistake that I made publicly, which is Mm -hmm. also what I'm asking people to do. So. Those are the. I mean, those are really the things. It's. It was deeply personal in a way I didn't expect. It was more violent than I expected. I mean, I just never imagined I was going to spend my time fighting with people about whether Robert E. Lee was a good guy or not. I mean, it's just a shock. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's just the weight of getting it right in areas that are not my expertise, which, quite frankly, are all of them. I think that's the that's the the most interesting thing about this work when you talk about because ultimately, you know, you and I, we've had conversations on and off mic around like. Ultimately, you're talking to a lot of people who are um, self-described diversity, equity, inclusion experts. But like the reality is, it's like all of this work in like in its full earnestness is still very new. And like no one, I don't believe, has a right outside of people who've had lived experience. Right. So you're talking about folks who have um, who really lived this and they've built things, they've built coalitions. Right. So like if you talk about people with a civil rights background, sure. But I'm talking about like the average corporate DNI person, you know. There's very little, I believe, true like expertise. Like it's like, look, you we're all out here just trying to learn and grow and 
amplify and, and make it make an impact where we can. I do think that you and this is not a pat on the back. I really do think it's important that people appreciate folks who are in your position. You're one of the few people I think who like, well, will take onus on mistakes that you make. Right. If you miss. Yeah. Right. There's some journalistic principles to that, too, of course. But it also, I think, comes with the domain of what you're covering. Like, I think there's there's a lot of times when folks just feel like they're so beyond apologizing. It's like, no, you you were wrong. It's OK. Right. Right. And that is that's, that's it's humiliating. But and it's hard to master. And I, in a highly competitive environment, it feels like you're going to lose something impo- um, important, some sort of status thing. But I think particularly for for white audiences who don't understand and I didn't understand until I started learning more about the contours of what it means to be white. You know, we spend so much time talking about what everybody else's life is like and what they need from us and what we should do. But right. we, we, meaning white people, need to think about what whiteness actually is. And that seems to trigger this hideous reaction from folks. It's like a soul death that I, I think that the more we become accustomed to making space for these conversations and white people... Especially, especially white people who are in the leadership positions, talking with other people about the shape of of the idea of whiteness it's, as mm. a concept, as yeah. a construct, and yeah. what that means, and why you cling to it, even if you don't know that you're clinging to it, the better off we're going to be. And so, modeling that, I think I, I'm, I'll give you a good example. Mm. A couple of years ago, we sent out a reader survey. Our marketing department sent out a reader survey to anybody who subscribes to a Fortune newsletter. And the first part of the survey was boilerplate, and the rest of it was tailored to your specific newsletters. I only paid attention to the information that we were asking for my readers around who they were and what they needed and how diverse they were and all this other stuff. What I didn't notice was that the first part of the newsletter only had um, male or female as an option for your gender. And I know. And within seconds of it going out, I, my inbox was filled, filled with people who weren't angry, but were deeply hurt. And it was such a validation of the relationship that we had created together. But oh, I, I scrapped everything I was working on, sent apologies, to personal apologies to everybody who had written to me, and then spent the next um, column walking through what happened, apologizing and promising to do better. But in order to actually do that, I had to get our folks who designed the survey on Bangalore on the phone and get them to add other options um, and then make sure with my audience that I had added the right options. And I, it was a beautiful experience. I'm still humiliated by it. <laughs> I didn't but even it's... notice. I didn't even notice. But as a result, I, we, I brought that to our Fortune um, events team and now all introductory language and all of the scripts for all fortune conferences uses gender neutral terms. Well, it's, it's incredible. Right. And I, I think what people in positions of empowerment and power is relative. Right. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but like, yeah, but like privilege is relative. So like, you know, I'm a black, um, straight presenting straight man, Christian man, um, who is over six feet. So it's like those, th- that comes with certain challenges and certain privilege. And it's like, but it's like when you can demonstrate humility to communicate, oh, you know, I, I caught this. I realized I was wrong. And this is this is what we're going to do about it. Like, that's huge. And I think also to your point, like them not being mad, but being hurt um, yeah. like that. That's an important part of like piece of nuance to grasp and like to decenter yourself. Like we've had 
um, other conversations on the pod around like decentering whiteness from conversations uh, with marginalized communities. And it's like, if you just decenter yourself for a moment, stop thinking that, you know, stop centering your own hurt or your own pride or ego and consider that people are reaching out to you and they, they sound angry and they sound or they're yelling or they're using direct or curt language is because they feel ignored or left behind or they don't feel seen. And like, that's important, right? Like, like we're all human beings. Like we all have, we all by very, by the very nature of our own existence have deserved the right to be seen. And I think like that, if we can change our perspective a little bit, especially from a leadership perspective and understand where that pain is coming from and that like that hurt, I think that can time shift like just the overall responses. You know what I mean? You're absolutely right about that. And it is a leadership skill and it's an inclusive leadership skill. And it's it's one of a core set of listening and decentering skills that are um, very hard to learn and very hard to teach because they do take time to master and to be um, supported in a work environment, especially a work environment that's under siege that wants to be innovative or is having some sort of problem. Or now we all, we all have the same problem. (laughs) Now we all have coronavirus. (laughs) So, you know, all of the, all of the things that we know to do to be inclusive tend to go by the wayside when we're in an emergency situation and people tend to fall on their worst habits. They hire mini-me's, they assemble teams of people like them, they want to stay comfortable uh, in times of real volatility. So I think we're entering into a pretty interesting test, whether some of our commitments to taking risks, and I've got air quotes around risks with people right. who are <laughs> not like ourselves, sure. will we'll, we'll stick with that. Um, during times when teams are going to be coming together rapidly and people are going to be making very difficult decisions. Agreed. You know, and let's 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 continue forward. Let's talk about you actually in this work. Like, okay, you know, because you talked about the shape. <laughs> and again, like we don't. I'm just I'm, I, I love side note. I love this platform because of the kind of conversation we have. You know, shout out to you. You're one of the first people that really talked about one of the few people on the platform so far that we've really like tackled like the concept of whiteness, like the way you've talked about the contour and shape of whiteness, like how it practically shows up. I want to talk about what it looks like for you um, being who you are, a a black woman in this space, talking to majority white executive leaders around these issues Um, and like. What what does it look like to maintain a balance? I don't and I don't even know if balance is the right word, but it's like you have to, I would imagine, carry enough of a relationship so that you can actually get them to open up and have conversations. Well, at the same time, I, I could be wrong. It seems as if if you go like too hard, then you end up damaging your potential network and brand to like where you won't be able to have any more conversations with, with this space. But you're also trying to like speak on behalf of or amplify marginalized voices or speak truth to power. Like I'm curious as to like that dynamic and like, how does it work for you as a journalist? That is such a great question. Most people don't ask me that. And it really is something I've thought a lot about over the years. The vast majority of the work I I have done as a journalist, which was the second career for me, um, that involved powerful people had nothing to do with race. Although I always asked questions about, you know, race and equity as a natural part of the way I talked And that was mostly at Fast Company where I wrote a lot of profiles. And writing profiles of people is a different way of telling a story about a company. It means I don't have to be a tech expert or I don't have to be um, a hardware expert or I don't have to be a medical devices expert to talk to people who are running these kinds of companies. 
because the higher you go up in the food chain, the more what you, of what you do all day is the people part, is right. making sure that you're removing barriers for growth. And that includes touching product and touching money. But mostly what you do is you think about people and not just your customers, but the people that work for you. And those are, those are universal conversations, and those were ones that I learned to get good at. And I also, because I, this is odd, because I spent years and years and years as an art dealer and working in museums and galleries, I spent a lot of time talking to people I didn't know, typically people who had more money than I did, <laughs> about something they absolutely did not need to buy, which is, you know, pigment on on some parchment or sure, fabric, sure. and then just talk about the world, the world of ideas. And I got very comfortable talking to people with status because of that decades-long experience. And once you start talking to people, then other things can flow from it. So I walked into the race beat having developed a sense of comfort and belonging talking to people who were, quote-unquote, powerful. And to your point, and I'm going to say this delicately, because I've always been sort of a middle-of-the-pack person in the newsroom, in journalism, mm. I'm not part of any kind of fast track, No, one, I don't look like the next editor-in-chief of anything, mm. you know, based on results of the last couple of decades, I felt a sort of freedom that people who are largely invisible often feel. Um, mm. And... I was lucky. I wasn't head of a household. I didn't have children for most of my journalism career. Um, I'm a stepmother now, so I, I, I don't bear the sole responsibility for their well-being. I support older relatives, but I, for the most part, I live a pretty safe and self-contained life. So I felt I could take some big swings and big risks. Um, and I, I, just, I just am nobody's next choice for executive anything right mm. um, like so many of us are i'm the person i say this with real love and real respect yeah but i am the person who found a niche and was expected and i expected that of myself to stay there it is a very freeing thing as much as i would love someone to throw me the keys to a major publication and have all my leadership delusions of grandeur play out for me for the most part, I got where I am by turning in story after story after story after story, asking very powerful people some questions that I was legitimately curious about, about how they think, how they lead, how they make mistakes, how they course correct, um, you know, I think. And, and these are difficult conversations to have. I, it, was, it was not fun for me to ask Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike, what the heck was going on with Tiger Woods? And right. <laughs> you, know, you know these kinds of things. It's like what's what's at stake, and we talk about all of them with a sense of purpose of telling a story, and not a sense of I need to hold you accountable. On the other hand, I haven't really interviewed any actual evildoers. I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I, I've never chased down Harvey Weinstein. Um, I have never chased down a person who was an obvious problem that way. And I think I look forward to being able to do that one day. But I do think in the work that I'm doing now, when I started diversity and inclusion as a serious practice and as a serious emphasis was relatively new. Four years into it, we haven't gotten very far. And now I think I'm going to find myself in having more serious conversations with people who have said all the right things. 
um, and haven't gotten very far with their results. And they're, they're, those are going to be candid conversations. They're going to be challenging conversations. And um, I assume noble intent for all of them. But I do think that corporate America, when it comes to inclusion, is going to have to face some sort of reckoning. And um, there are some obvious problems in the tech world. There are some obvious problems people aren't even trying. Um, but there are some real bright spots, uh, particularly in, in, in certain sectors, like consultancies, for example, mm-hmm. um, who, who really are, are trying. They may not be getting where they want to go, but there's a real openness there. So uh, I expect the conversations I will be having to be getting more, more emotional yeah. and yeah. because we now have data and the data shows that we're not, we're not moving far enough, fast enough. No, you're absolutely right. And, and, and to your point, I, I do think relative to other spaces, there are at least mm, consultancies and in, in, in that space, like they're out there at least talking the talk. And one could pessimistically surmise that that's because of um, who their clients are or how they're trying to market. But but still like, yeah, right. Like there's they're they're doing more that space. And, and, you know, we, we could go firm to firm, but like that space is doing more than um, than like, you know, certainly than Google is today. Right. Yes. Like, right. Right. So, or, or, or Uber um, or others. There's so I, I 100 percent. I hear you on that. I do agree. Um, one, I think it's incredible that you just <laughs> you acknowledge the fact that like ha- haven't made the progress and momentum, had the momentum that you're looking for. I do agree. And it resonates with me about the fact that um, the work itself is going to need to get more you know, lovingly confrontational, like, and not, not, not your work explicitly. I mean, just like diversity, equity, inclusion work is going to, because I do think as we have Gen Z, as they integrate more into the workforce, um, you know, people talked about how millennials have a lower bar or uh, level of tolerance for some of the, some of like the, the talking around and, you know, they'll leave and, you know, they'll, they'll transfer jobs or they'll, they'll quit or they'll, they'll pursue their passion, all that kind of stuff. I really think we're going to see a much different and higher degree of that with this next yeah. generation of workers. Right. And I think that like, they're just a savvier group of people. They're more inform They're more like just informed because they grew up. They didn't just grow up. Like they didn't grow up in the internet when they were like in high school. Like they, they had tablets when they were toddlers. Right. So right. like the idea of this de- next group um, wanting, wanting a different type and level of accountability. Um, and this fact, right. the fact of the matter is that Gen Z, like it's going to be the most like like the most diverse group of people that's ever entered the workforce. You know what I mean? Like more more black and brown, more um, uh, gender fluid, uh, trans non-binary, more representation across the queer spectrum. Like all like there's going to just be way more like just just a, a, just a, like a different different cohort of worker in this that's next right. generation. Yeah. That's right. And hearts and minds are just not going to get you there. You, we cannot make sure that everyone feels super comfortable and understands everything and just feels good about things. You know, I think the first step is going to be what are the actual rules and systems that you can put into place or mitigate bias and make sure that people are behaving um, well in the workplace. There are a couple of things that often come to mind, but Intel has the warm line. Are you familiar with that? I was very no, impressed. No, break it down for us. It was. I'm really and Barb, Barbara Y is um, is their chief diver- global diversity officer. She's really smart. She's really on it. They have a, a very unusual way of 
of measuring diversity and that they're on track and sort of a percentage of representation in the in the marketplace, which I appreciate, and they're managing to it beautifully. But if there is a, a person at any level, but typically individual contributor, is having a problem with their manager, they have something called a warm line. It's warmer than the hotline. And yeah. they and they can find somebody who is trained to understand, to help them understand what's happening. So it's like putting in a ticket, like a tech ticket, and determining what needs to happen next. And what often needs to happen next is that their manager needs an intervention, some support, some training, some information. And that is looked at as a developmental experience, not a punishment. And some yeah. of their, I don't have their data in front of me, but their data around the warm line usage has been outstanding. People have been using it. People have been flagging issues. They've been using it to not only help individual managers, but to beef up training, making sure that this is something for everybody and that managers who get a call from the warm line people aren't feeling shamed by it so that they disappear forever. And I was really, that is an example of a systemic approach to people's behavior and making sure they understand what's expected of them if they're having trouble just formulating a response, that they have that new information, they have that language at their fingertips, but making it very clear across the line that how people are feeling at work is important to the organization. You link that to performance metrics, to your performance reviews. If you link that to your compensation, are you promoting people, not just bringing people into your team, are you moving them along? Those are the kinds of things that really make a systemic difference and the hearts and minds will follow. I hope that the hearts and minds will come along as we become more comfortable working with people who are different from ourselves because that's the gift of proximity. You know, that's that's the whole purpose of proximity as Brian Stevenson so beautifully talks about. But these are the kinds of bright spots that I collect, like little pearls of hope that I collect that make me feel hopeful that people are very serious about solving some of these issues. No, no, a hundred percent. I think to your point, like what I'm excited about, what I'm, what I have not seen. Right. And, and, and I'll also say Ellen, like living corporate has allowed me um, space to interview a wide array of people, right. As you know, but, yeah. but what I haven't, what I haven't explicitly experienced um, and I haven't seen, heard anyone really articulate um, is like, we're in this phase now where it's like all about like awareness and unconscious bias, right? So like we're talking about, we're doing unconscious bias training. We're talking about, we're kind of still talking about vocabulary. Um, we are, you know, that's kind of like really been like the space we've been in for some years now. And what I'm really interested in seeing this next phase of yeah. leadership development and work and just in this space overall is let's, let's get away from like, and not get away from it wholly, but what I mean is let's continue the conversation for it. Yes, we've talked about the historicity of racism. We've talked about um, structural structural inequity, but sometimes it, it it turns like theoretical or like abstract, like it's out there, right? Like it's like, I'm really excited about what does it look like for you to say, okay, so yes, we have structural inequity um, and we have like a variety of ways, right? People are uh, economically disadvantaged. There's food deserts, there's um, there's all types of things. Let's also talk about the structural inequities in this workplace, right? right. Let's, like, let's talk about our behaviors in this space and how it reinforces patriarchy, white supremacy, how, it, how, how we have outmoded ideas of hierarchy and power and structure and like how things not only curtail innovation, um, but they also um, exacerbate um, mental wellness problems and challenges like what right like let's like that's what i'm looking for i'm looking for i'm looking for us to evolve 
and and put some of the white fragility down and have some honest dialogue around that. You know what I mean? I do. I'm hoping that I'll be able to find ways to either lead these kinds of conversations or participate in these kinds of conversations that will send a ripple through a culture. And it, you're absolutely right for it to work, for it to work well, um, or really at all, it has to ripple through the culture of what is perceived to be power now. And that's hard and that's terrifying. You know, people, power does not give itself up easily. As a culture, in the United States at least, majority culture, I'm only going to talk about majority culture here, which is different yeah. than other places, yeah. we have a very specific idea of who who we think is powerful. And we're still going through the exercises of Google a leader and, you know, pictures of white people show up or ask a child, what does a doctor look like? And they draw a white guy in a, in a white smock. It's right. just the, the image is so ingrained. I think this is where the entertainment media has a real role to play. Just by normalizing certain kinds of people who aren't typically in charge, the idea of non-traditional casting uh, is is already yeah. an insulting point of view. Yeah. But but it explains the problem. The president has typically looked a certain way in the history of media. Women um, have have always been presented a certain way as sort of the sidekick or the supporter of the sexual object and and powerful for ways of because they were magic or wily or just nonsense things that influence all kinds of ideas about how we as a entertainment culture think of people who are powerful um, with black people with certain kinds of hair would automatically make things like the crown act less of a big deal you the know fact that we even have to have a crown act is wild it is wild. All of this stuff is wild. And little by little, as people start to notice it and think about it in context, once you get over the initial shock of, God, how did I not know this before? Or I'm embarrassed or I'm embarrassed that I noticed in myself mm-hmm. that I was mm-hmm. uncomfortable with the dentist with braids at the wow, idea of a yeah. dentist. But, you know, like suddenly just to make the cultural aspects of that less wrenching for individual people. But it does have to be intentional. I think I have looked at too many videos of young people with tiki torches or read too many ridiculous sort of comments on TikTok videos or just in general on social media to believe that young people automatically have the answer. I assure you, they do not. And (laughs) It's a a lazy analysis, truly. It is terrible. And even if they did, it wouldn't make a difference if they don't come out to vote. You know, the young people's revolution is not coming. It has petered out. And I think as as young people in particular walk into their lives and feel increasing pressures of you know, wanting to have a life partner and wanting to have a livable home, wanting to have a livable wage, all of the pressures and the weird preconceived notions about what we think is power and what we think is good behavior in society are just going to come bubbling back and turn into their worldview. It's just, um, it just feels inevitable at this point. You know, I think that really helps us transition into the work that you're doing now and and the topic of your conversations on race ahead um, and even just the focus of like the things that you you know that I see that you tweet about and you talk about. Right. Um, you've been covering politics this year. Why is that? <laughs> you know, I I in the last couple of years, particularly as the Trump presidency was starting, I made a decision that I was going to mention things that he said that were not true or um, address the policies and how they affected my audience in a very direct way. 
And that was something that I think many, many, many people in many industries had to work very hard to think about the fine line that they wanted to walk on there. Do, do they want to, they don't want to alienate someone who feels strongly identified with Republican values and principles and also not make the president angry if you have to interface with him for any reason like most people in business do. But I have a very specific audience. I have an audience of people who are, who are considered um, uh my audience cares about people who are black and brown and Hispanic and immigrant and AAPI and LGBTQI plus, you know, all of those things, people who are underrepresented in, in communities, in schools, in power, in leadership, in business, and in, you know, in financing, like all of the things that we know. If we care about this audience, we have to examine in direct ways the speech and the policies that affect this audience. This is that is the talent pipeline. That is my my audience. And if you want to have a diverse pipeline, you have to care about the fact that black women are unlikely to survive motherhood. That you have to care about the fact that you know certain neighborhoods um, are unsafe in very very specific and manageable ways, and we don't manage them. So I cover all of that. And this particular administration far more than previous ones, were working really hard to not only undo any of the elements of the previous administration, the Obama administration, that led to greater inclusion in the government and across society, but were directly, aggressively making people less safe from the immigration ban, from transgender issues, both in the military and throughout society. It was just like one thing after another. So I just decided that I had to talk about it. I had to flag it. Making people afraid to take the census is an incredibly dangerous thing. Yeah. And, you know, the undercounting of vulnerable communities, of people who are worried that their citizenship is going to be questioned is, is dangerous. It's going to have impact on community health for years to come. The um, kids in cages at the border, like all of this, it was just an overwhelming amount of things that hit the political and public policy sphere. So I decided I was going to cover it all, not necessarily advocating for one candidate over another, but just these are the issues and you should flag them. You should understand the genesis of them and come up with an idea for yourself. And I will say, though, for, for 2020, just for a brief moment of time, having such a diverse slate of candidates was... Yeah. Um, was a beautiful and affirming thing, and it was an interesting way to get to know a variety of different people and their communities and where they came from, but also try to understand where they fit into a traditional political machine. I don't think I have any answers around that, but it has been interesting to watch it, and it has been interesting to see where voters are moving to to feel safe and hopeful. Yeah. So... I'm, I'm, really I'm, I'm speaking really carefully right now. I don't. Wanna, <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much, but I of my own personal preferences. Sure. But I do think, as sad as it has been for people to lose their candidate of choice, it was tremendously exciting to see such diversity on stage. No, you I, know, I, I Andrew agree. Yang was a surprise. He was a surprise, right? And yeah. I think, and I think it's like. It's, it, it really helps me as someone who has my I live, you know, we all live in respective bubbles, irrespective, like no, no matter how, how, you know, woke or um, aware we think we are, like we all have um, areas that we just don't understand. You know, I think that that was a wake up call for me like, dang, I really OK, we voting for Andrew Yang. OK, um, I think 
I think I'm really curious. And as, as we kind of as we come to a close here, you know, you when Bloomberg was in the race, um, oh. maybe you were holding it back, but you you didn't seem to um, hide your anger and frustration, not only on your personal social media accounts, but also on race ahead. And I'm curious to know what role do you believe that anger um, can play in um, speaking truth to power and then driving systemic change? <laughs> that is such a great question. I was livid and I was, I am still surprised at how angry I got with that thing. He said he lied about what redlining is to protect his client. I mean, he, he has his entire wealth is based on his relationship with the financial services community. I mean, just billions and billions and billions of dollars is running around. And then he lies about what redlining is. And I, I just, I lost my mind. I lost my mind. And I, I honestly don't know what it was that triggered such a strong reaction. Um, and it could be a variety of things, including, you know, blood sugar and not enough sleep or whatever. But I, I was well and truly angry. And I tried so hard not to sound angry in that column. And I'm a little bit afraid to even go back and reread it because I, I was shaking mad for days. Yeah, yeah. I just, I couldn't. And I really struggled to figure out what it was that had triggered me so badly. And the problem is, is that in order to write that column, I went and looked up some of the tracts on yeah. redlining and read what people wrote about how they were managing these communities and really just thought about, let it, let's just let it myself marinate in the kinds of things that people were saying, leaving specifically about immigrants and black people and Jews, just the hatred and the way they described how they lived and the way they went out of their way to make sure that these communities were isolated and continue to be isolated for generations. It's just, and then to just breezily say, breezily say, look how mad I am now. Look how you just made me so mad right now. <laughs> <laughs> and just to breezily say, oh, yes, because the banks changed their regulations, poor people got mortgages they couldn't manage, and they ruined the economy for everybody. And not one person associated with the 28 financial crash was held, like, accountable, really, really accountable. Um, they, they paid fines. They... It was sort of a rearrangement of things, and I know that there were plenty. I've interviewed plenty of bank executives that, who felt the weight of that. All of them women, by the way, who felt the who mm. felt the weight of it. Who felt it was important to it was important wake up call to make real changes. Yeah. I'm glad nothing similar has happened again. But I just, I, I, I'm speechless. I'm so angry just even remembering that. And so, what I guess I would say to answer your big bigger question. Is that the righteous rage of people who have a point to make, and it's about systemic unfairness, and it's it's women who get put down for their anger. They're called all kinds of names. It's black people who are isolated, and you know, it's the angry black man, the angry black woman. You know, the things that the things that we do to put down people who have a real point to make is such a sign that we're on the right track. You know, <laughs> that the powerful people respond with with lies and Bloomberg. Is not is a smart man. He willfully right. misrepresented right. the definition of redlining, right. and there's nothing anybody can tell me that would make me believe any differently. And he did it for a reason, and he did it to protect powerful people such as himself. And he did it because we are not, as a society, prepared to do our own work, to read books, to think about how things actually work, and to doubt powerful people because we need them and we depend on them for our survival. You know, that's how they they get away with it. And so it takes it takes the the, you know, the the angry the angry voice the clear voice 
of that is not true. We need them. We need them whether we're typing. We need them whether we're showing up and voting. It doesn't yeah. have to. You don't have to be screaming it. But, you know, hang on to it. Hang on to it. You know, there's just the world really depends on someone who is too agitated by a terrible injustice that continues to play out in front of them to sit by the wayside. And, you know, call me an angry black woman. You call call me, you know, call anybody anything. As soon as you start hearing that label, you know that you're that you're onto something. And that leads to the ultimate expression of allyship is believe other people. Right. You know, that's it. That's, you, you, you don't get to call yourself an ally. I get to call you an ally. Right. And I, I will call you an ally when you believe. When I see you believing and taking a, an action that puts you at risk. And that's, that's what we need to see. You just I don't ask people to prove it. Don't ask people to you know present you more evidence. I'm not coming at you with a PowerPoint deck. <laughs> None of those things. When people tell you there's a problem, you need to listen to them. You need to listen to and, them. Yeah, and that's it. That's the one-two dance of anger. That's um, that is. Uh, I am furious thinking about that damn redlining thing. I am like legitimately furious. I was furious for days. Yeah. I. And I still, I cannot tell you, I know that you should get, in your spare time, you should get a therapist license because that would be hilarious to (laughs) actually process this with you. I cannot quite put my finger on what made me so angry, but I could not believe it. It it was everything. This guy breezes in, starts throwing money around. He wants to be president. half a billy. He could, he could have registered. How many, how many fines? Of formerly incarcerated people in Florida, could he have paid right. to restore voting rights? He could have fixed yeah. the entire Flint water crisis. Right, right. With, with millions life. left over. Millions left over for for a party. It's just That's I don't. Nuts. I couldn't believe it. And then to lie like that, and it, it, it's. <sighs> I love, but and I I apologize. I apologize for taking you there. I didn't. I did. I didn't. It's good audio, man. It, it is good audio. It is I, good audio, though. But 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 it's, but it's important because I do think, I do think we're missing that too. I think we're missing the reality of lived, of the rage that comes with lived experience when we talk about equity, right? I think it's Eurocentric in uh, origin. It's like this, yeah. like over dependence on, or almost like this, like we almost make data divine, right? Like. Like, look, data is just our points of information compiled by human beings that are that have conscious and unconscious biases. This quantity of data is but one point. There are other um, there are other things that need to be considered. And that that has to, I believe, include lived experience. Um, you know, yeah. what? I, I really think, Ellen, we need to just we need to end it right here. Um, y'all shout <laughs> out. <laughs> shout out to Ellen McGirt, senior editor of Race and Leadership. For Fortune Magazine, uh, make sure we're going to have all of her information in the show notes. Make sure y'all subscribe to all of her different newsletters, including Race Ahead. Um, it's a wonderful read. I check it out every single day. Uh, we definitely consider Ellen McGirt a friend of the pod of uh, of Living Corporate as a whole organization. Yes. Appreciate you, um, y'all. We here, you know, every Tuesday we drop these real conversations. Make sure you check us out. You know what it is. Just Google us, man. I ain't about to list all our stuff. You know what I mean? Just look us up. Living corporate. Until next time, y'all. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. 
Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.